So um, we're very excited. We're ending this conference with one of the most popular sessions that we have um, every year. It's on sexually transmitted infections on the rise, syphilis, uh, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. And we're really excited to have uh, Dr. Workowski here uh, from Emory, a professor of medicine at Emory University. Dr. Workowski. We are bringing her on up. Tell me to keep on time. Good morning. It's hard to talk about my topic in 30 minutes, so everyone's telling me to keep on time. Um, and uh, is this a problem for you guys out there? How many have you seen an STD in the last week? There you go. So a popular topic. Uh, so what I'm going to try to do is quickly, uh, I, we only have three STDs to talk about. If you want to talk about others um, or if you've got an interesting case, um, you can come to the breakout session um, where all topics are welcomed. So I'm going to talk to you about what you're seeing out in the community in terms of this massive increase that we're seeing in sexually transmitted infections and just give you an idea of the numbers. Um, Every year, CDC produces a surveillance report to give us an idea um, of what our numbers are. And remember, these are probably underreported. Um, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. But I just wanted to get your attention in terms of the percentage increase for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and also the epidemic that we're having for the past five years of congenital syphilis massive increases in congenital syphilis, which in my opinion is a public health emergency. So you can see the massive increase, and for the fifth straight year we've had record-setting numbers, which is um, unfortunately um, not good. So let's start with looking at some surveillance and how we screen, and then I'm going to talk to you about what I think is important uh, in terms of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, the three things we're talking about. CDC has a surveillance um, system in place called the STD Surveillance Network, which looks at family planning clinics, STD clinics, and just to get a flavor of what we're seeing in terms of the prevalence. Um, these are high numbers, and you see both for syphilis and gonorrhea that higher prevalence is in individuals with HIV infection. So one of the first things, one of the pillars, is how good are we at screening? We're not so good. Um, even syphilis screening, which really, truthfully, doesn't take that much effort. It's a, a click of a box to get a blood test. How good are we as HIV providers? 60 to 70 percent of us do it and do it regularly. So we're actually not that good. Um, and so again, we're going to talk about things that you might do in your practice to help in terms of screening. These are the recommendations for screening in men who have sex with men and um, women and heterosexual men. So we'll start with, first with um, men who have sex with men. So um, the HIV is for those that are at risk for HIV infection. Syphilis serology at least annually, and that includes an RPR and a treponemal test, and we'll talk about why that's important. Site-specific screening. Um, and the hepatitis, hepatitis A, B, and C, which are sexually transmittable, at least annually and more frequently depending on your risk. Uh, three to six months if you're at increased risk, which is pretty much all of my patients that I see. 
they have been trained and I don't even have to ask them anymore. They say, I, you know, give me my swabs, I'll do my own swabs. So uh, again, you have to get them in this kind of routine and make them think that this is part of routine care, which it is. In women and heterosexual men, we have recommendations from the United States uh, Public Health Service where women less than the age of 25 or women at older um, at increased risk, which they define as greater than 25, so I'm really old. Um, and the recommended um, collection tool is actually a self-collected vaginal swab, which is very simple. Providers don't need to be present. Women can do it themselves. There is no extra general recommendations in women. In HIV-positive women, it's um, the pap smear, of course, um, now every three years per the national guidelines, um, and a trichomonas at entry. Um, and in heterosexual men, we don't have recommendations for universal screening. It's based on the prevalence in your community. And then remember, after a chlamydia, gonorrhea, or trick, you need to retest within three months. So how common is extragenital um, infection? It's actually very common. This is an MMWR that came out last year that basically they set a, up a booth at a community fair and asked people to come in their little tent to do extragenital screening. Acceptance rate was way over 90% and one of eight men had evidence of extragenital infection. Um, so if you look at the three major studies, it's actually very common for extragenital infection. And the reason we screen is because most infections at those sites have no symptoms. So this is our first case that we're gonna do. And I'm gonna, this is a teaser because I'm not gonna tell you the answer. Um, you're going to think about what this um, is, and then you, we're going to come back to it later in the talk. Um, this is a, a gentleman, 49-year-old gentleman, who's HIV positive with diabetes, a chronic kidney disease, hepatitis B and D, who presented with lip pain, weight loss, anorexia, and dysphagia. His HIV and his hepatitis B were not in control. So as part of his evaluation, what would you recommend doing to make the diagnosis? Does everybody see the problem? Okay, you see that big old ulcer he's got under his lip. Um, so what would you do? Um, would you do a dark field uh, HSV PCR, a treponemal EIA, a chlamydia gonorrhea test, or an RPR? So we'll take your answers and we'll see how right you are in about 15 minutes. Very interesting case. We have any, do we have a distribution yet? Or did I miss that, mess that up? Can you go back? I at least want to see how people voted. There's some people that got it right. The minority, that's what I wanted to do. Okay, so keep that in mind as we talk. So we'll talk about syphilis first. Um, and syphilis continues, it's the, the great um, humbler diagnosis. I continue to be humbled by the diagnosis even after being in the field for a very long period of time. 
Um, it continues to amaze, and anything can be syphilis. What's happening in terms of the rates? The rates are continuing to go up. What you see there on your left um, is a dramatic decrease in the male-to-female ratio. So what does that mean? That means we're seeing a lot more women with syphilis, which is leading concomitantly to an increase in congenital syphilis. So the rates are continuing to go up in men, mostly uh, men who have sex with men, but also there's been an um, increase in women. Um, if we look at um, some data from the CDC looking at um, MSM, men who have sex with women and women, um, and you look at the HIV positive, most of these are occurring in men who have sex with men. Um, and HIV negative individuals would put them at risk for HIV infection and should be considered for PrEP if they have um, primary, secondary syphilis. Um, those are the people that we need to get on PrEP because they are the ones at risk for HIV infection. What's happening in women is what was talked about previously. We're seeing this epidemic of substance abuse in the rural areas. That's also linking to increased hepatitis C and increase to syphilis, which is then transmitted to the, our infants, and that's some of where this congenital syphilis increase is coming from. So this is the first time we've seen this in the past um, three to five years of this dramatic increase in substance abuse um, in women. So we basically have two epidemics going on right now, one in the heterosexual community, um, especially involving women and substance abuse, and the other epidemic which is continuing is in our MSM. Primary syphilis can look like anything. What I list for you is a number of pictures, and I would say, how many of you would think that this is syphilis by looking at these pictures? See, one on the vulva, one on the penis, one on the finger. Would you think about the finger as a syphilitic chancre? Um, the answer is probably no. Number two, on the, on the tongue, it can look very different, and our diagnosis, um, to be able to diagnose this, um, is a little bit challenging. And then I'll show you some data in a couple of slides of the presentation of the multiple painful ulcers. Syphilis um, in our textbooks has generally been painless. We're seeing increasing presentations of very painful ulcers. And also a case report recently of syphilis that was misdiagnosed for weeks that presented as a primary urethritis. So again, syphilis can do anything. Once these lesions go away, they go into secondary disease, about three to six weeks after primary. Especially in HIV-infected individuals, you can have primary and secondary occurring together. Um, you see the characteristic rash, but truthfully, there is no characteristic rash. Patients don't have to have uh, rash on their palms and the soles. And sometimes it's very difficult in skin that is dark to determine that there is a rash. You need to use a light, and you need to look at it very carefully. Um, a lot of folks don't do skin exams. You need to do skin exams, and you need to look in the mouth and the rectum where their sites of penetration are. Um, the, the individual in the middle, I don't know where my, oh, is this the pointer? Um, the individual in the middle here um, had a negative RPR and um, treponemal test because he had a CD4 count of one. He wasn't able to mount an immune response. So again, it can do anything. And then the picture here is a picture of condylomalata. Um, that can occur, moist lesions that can occur, occur throughout the genitalia. This is what I was talking about, the unusual presentations. This is a series of patients that was presented um, 
by um, a group in Australia um, looking at a group of anal lesions, and in particular, these were extremely painful, and people associate painful lesions with either LGV or um, um, herpes. Um, and only 8% of patients in this series had herpes. So again, if you see a painful lesion, you still need to think about syphilis, and a lot of times we see them associated with bacterial superinfection. So again, it continues to humble us, this disease. This is a patient I saw in the hospital for another reason. Um, this was his manifestation of syphilis. Would you have looked at this, and this is an arm that's on a chest. This is on his chest, this is on his arm, and this is his neck. He had no lesions, genital lesions, nothing. This was um, his manifestation of syphilis. So again, anytime you see anything, it could be syphilis, just saying. <laughs> it continues to confound, I think, um, most of us that have done this for a long period of time. So how do we make the diagnosis? We don't have a point of care test, which is horrible, which is really bad. Um, we have serologic tests, which truthfully stink. Um, and the reason they stink is they've, they've been in existence for 50 years and there's limitations to them. We need two tests to make the diagnosis of syphilis, a treponemal test and a non-treponemal test. I list for you the traditional algorithm, which is you start with an RPR, follow with a treponemal test, but that can miss primary disease. If you, somebody comes in with those shankers, um, 30 to 40% of the time your RPR has been negative. How many of your labs bundle RPR and treponemal tests? So if a patient, right, raise your hand if your lab bundles. Not many. So if you come in and just do an RPR and your RPR is negative, what do you do? Do you give a patient treatment or do you wait for that treponemal test to come back? That's some of the conundrums that we're having as clinicians, right? And the, the answer is, if you think it's syphilis, don't wait for the treponemal test to come back if you're not bundling, you treat because they're gonna go out and potentially infect somebody else. Or what about the, um, research, uh, the reverse sequence algorithm? You start with a treponemal test followed by an RPR. The problem is if you've had syphilis before, the treponemal test will always be positive. And not all treponemal tests are the same. Some of them have better sensitivity than others. This test, uh, this slide, I don't really want you to read it except to get what's in bold. What's in bold, if you're using the FTA ABS, it's a crappy test, don't use it. Get your lab to change to a newer test. This just shows right here, in the first column in primary disease, you're gonna miss it even with your FTA ABS. There's much better tests, an EIA, a CIA are much better than an FTA ABS. So um, recommendation is not to use that test. Um, can we do better in terms of detecting syphilis? Yes, screen people routinely. Um, they come in, and even if you're not seeing them as frequently, if, if you're seeing them maybe every six months, if they're virologically controlled, make sure that they come in if they're a, what I call an STD frequent flyer, um, and they come in frequently. They come in, you order your lab, have them come in, um, and do it every three months, or whatever it is to individualize to your patient. It's very easy to do. You can do it with SDI screening. They can do their own um, self-swabbing and come in and get their RPR. So you can make a difference and detect more syphilis if you routinize the screen, in particular for RPR. You can pick up more. Okay, so everybody ask about, what about LPs? Um, what about neurosyphilis? Remember, syphilis is a disseminated disease. When you get syphilis, even if you have a primary chancre, it disseminates. It's just like Lyme disease. It goes everywhere. Um, 
these initially, even when you get it to your CSF, it can either resolve or progress. What we're interested in is um, whether you have neurologic signs and symptoms. Uh, auditory disease, cranial nerve dysfunction, meningitis, um, those are the things that would indicate central nervous system disease. But we know, as I said, that treponeme can get in early, so the issue is that it's very common in early disease. You don't need to be LPing people because their titer is 1 to 32 or they are not virologically suppressed. You need to be LPing people if there's positive um, neurologic, audiologic, um, or ophthalmologic signs and symptoms, they have a positive RPR, um, and that's who you need to LP. Ocular syphilis, we're seeing much more of ocular syphilis. The bottom line here, the presentation can be anything. It's mostly pan-uveitis, but it can be optic neuritis. Um, it can be um, multiple different presentations. There are rare instances where all your treponemal tests are negative. Um, 30 to 40% of persons with ocular syphilis will have a normal CSF. Cardiovascular syphilis, this is a, um, a scan of a patient that um, we saw who had syphilis, secondary syphilis 10 years ago, presented to his HIV clinic and had a new murmur. On evaluation of the new murmur, was found to have this huge aortic aneurysm, which you can see here, ascending aortic aneurysm. Um, the pathology showed that there was histologic evidence of past syphilis. We didn't find the organism, but this was from an infection 10 years previously. So be on the watch for cardiovascular manifestations, because it's probably more common than you think. So let's get to this question, which I'm going to have you answer right now. This is a 32-year-old man who's virologically suppressed, who presented with sore throat, blurry vision, anterior uveitis, an RPR of 1 to 128, and he had an LP because of his blurry vision, and he had a completely normal LP. Does everybody see this throat here? That's syphilis. That's the only manifestation he had of syphilis, except for the eye findings. So how would you treat this patient? A single shot of benzathine, three weekly shots, um, IV um, penicillin G, doxycycline, or amoxicillin prosperobenicid. I'm already running behind. I can't even get off syphilis because it's so interesting. <laughs> It is, it's fascinating. Okay, so the, the answer here is we would treat for, um, with IV penicillin despite the negative um, CSF, which is correct, um, because despite a negative LP, um, he had um, ophthalmologic involvement. And so that necessitates giving IV penicillin because the, the eye is an extension of the brain, so that is the correct answer. So in terms of syphilis treatment, if you're HIV infected, do you, does, do you get any special treatment? Um, if you come in with secondary syphilis, do you get a single shot, one or three? One, good answer, the right answer. Um, still some people are skeptics and they still wanna give three shots because of some data in the literature 
um, that has showed case reports. The, the, the effectiveness of penicillin is never 100%. Um, there are people that fail serologically as well as clinically, so there's an ongoing RCT right now to answer the question. Um, we've got it's, uh, a trial of 500 patients. We've got about 120 patients we've enrolled so far. What about alternatives? Doxycycline works for early syphilis. Um, ceftriaxone, we have some more data using ceftriaxone daily for 10 days. Monitoring. Um, I could talk an hour about monitoring. There are problems. We can talk about that in our session. Um, but it, the bottom line for you taking care of patients with HIV, their titers can come down um, slower. And um, you should not treat the titer. You should treat the patient. And we can talk about that later. Um, serologic decline is associated with several factors, what stage they are, their initial titers, and their age. Older patients are less likely to decline fourfold. Um, what about should we be using, since there's a syphilis ep epidemic, should I be giving doxy to all my patients? Um, as doxy either PEP or PrEP. Um, there's uh, two studies that have addressed this with some intriguing data, but I will tell you that um, more studies are underway. We don't know the answer to this yet. Um, the efficacy is not yet determined. Small sample sizes, there's a problem with risk compensation. We don't know which dose, which formulation. What is the effect on the microbiome? And what about antimicrobial resistance for other bugs? So again, stay tuned for this. It's a lot on syphilis. Chlamydia. Um, chlamydia rates are high. Um, rates tend to be, uh, what I want you to notice on this slide is MSM have high rates throughout the age span. We have a great test, a nucleic acid amplification test. It's approved now at extragenital sites. Hopefully all of you know this. The FDA approved this about six months ago, so you don't have to do your internal validation for extragenital testing. What about treatment? So there has been some controversy about the treatment, azithromycin versus doxy. The reason is because there is data, mostly retrospective data, that shows doxy is better than azithromycin. So there's increasing data showing this. A meta-analysis was done a number of years ago um, showing that doxy is better than azithro, especially in men, especially in rectal infection. What's happening from this, um, from the STD treatment guidelines, as you know, the STD treatment guidelines are um, our national standard for treatment. There was a meeting that was held in June of this year. Um, the new guidelines will be out in 2020. I don't know the month yet, but the draft recommendations, because of the data we're seeing for chlamydia, will be that azithromycin will be a alternative regimen. Because of the increasing data we're seeing, um, doxycycline will now be the recommended regimen um, for seven days. There are three trials that are ongoing worldwide, a look at asymptomatic infection and comparing azithromycin to doxy, but the data is compelling enough. Um, those are the draft recommendations. Um, all aware, you guys are all aware of LGV, this clinical syndrome where you have these bilateral buboes um, associated with particular strains of chlamydia infection um, and the issue with proctitis that can cause LGV. Um, it's a compatible, you, you basically can't, we don't have a point of care yet test for LGV 
in the compatible clinical syndrome of proctocolitis in MSM or a person engaging in receptive anal intercourse. Um, you um, will use a nucleic acid amplification test um, to look for chlamydia. If it's positive, um, you will send that to the state to have them do LGV confirmation, but you will treat your patient for 21 days with doxy instead of seven days. I'm gonna skip a little bit of, oh, how common is this? Um, it's actually very common. Can you go back a couple of slides? Because I wanna show them the answer. Okay, so the answer to your question that I showed you, that 4% got right, probably the 4% that knew the answer to this, this was actually a LGV infection occurring on the lip. So what happened when we saw this patient in clinic, what I performed was an RPR, a gram stain, a herpes culture, PCR, I also, uh, a herpes culture, and I did a chlamydia gnat on this ulcer. Why? Because it was tender, um, because it looked different to me than syphilis. Um, we confirmed that it was um, LGV with genotyping. And then a second case came about um, in a gentleman, and that case, if you're interested, has been published this year. This was a gentleman um, from Michigan, an M, um, a 25-year-old MSM that had greater than 30 oral sex partners and presented with a similar ulcer and cervical lymphadenopathy. So the answer here um, is LGV. Um, so LGV can occur outside the genitalia, which is really interesting. Gonorrhea. Five minutes left, that's not gonna be good. Um, so the rates of gonorrhea are going up. Um, gonorrhea can do anything and can infect multiple orifices. Um, you all know this, but again, I wanna show you something you don't know or, or to remind you. This was a lady, you see the foot there, this is a pregnant lady I was asked to consult on because she had a penicillin allergy um, and what ended up happening is they took this woman to the OR, she was pregnant 32 weeks, I think, and um, didn't think about disseminated gonorrhea. So I, the, the issue is that um, people forget about disseminated gonorrhea, and the presentation is actually two um, presentations. One is this tenosynovitis dermatitis syndrome, and the other is a septic arthritis, usually involving the ankle or um, the joint. Um, those are the presentations. What's so difficult is that if you culture the synovial fluid, if you culture the blood, if you culture the skin lesions, less than 50% of the time you're going to find the bug. Where you find it is you need to, um, you find it at the mucosal sites of exposure, like the vagina, the rectum, the throat, and that's how the diagnosis was made in this, in this case. So she had disseminated gonorrhea and she had gonococcal um, osteomyelitis. The other thing I want to bring your attention, if you've heard of um, echolizumab, um, one of the biologics that's used for um, polycythemia vera and a number of other um, conditions, um, there's also an association of um, DGI infection because it affects the complement cascade. So if you have other immunocompromised um, individuals, you need to think about this. What's different about DGI presentation? From 40, 50 years ago, we saw it in women, and we saw it around the time of menses or pregnant. What we've noticed from the French, which is the article on the right, as well as some active surveillance that's been going on the past five years, is the epidemiology of this is changing. We don't know why it went away, 
We saw it a, a lot about 30 to 40 years ago. It was, it was associated with particular strains. Well, it's back. And it's back in strange presentations. And what's interesting is it's occurring now more in men than it is in women. And um, in this surveillance that is ongoing through the CDC, you can see 59% are now male, 16% um, are MSM, and look at that age, greater than 45 years old. Much different than we were seeing it before. So it's really, we, we're just trying to get a handle on this, but it's occurring in strange ways. And so if you think about DGI, you usually think about it in a young pregnant woman, but it's changing. So the other big news about gonorrhea is what are we going to need to do to treat it? So we know over time that antimicrobial resistance has been an increasingly co concern. And CDC has a surveillance mechanism in place to monitor what's happening with antimicrobial resistance. What happened back um, in uh, 2012, we, you saw uh, there was a little creep, which you see here in the green, of suffixine. Um, MIC started going up a little bit, so the decision was made to treat with dual therapy at that time. And what actually happened was the suffixine um, resistance went down, but guess what went up? This bug is just smarter than we are. Um, the azithromycin resistance went right up. So kind of where are we at at this point and what are we doing? Um, and this is just an indication that if you look at um, azithromycin resistance, um, it's actually um, more common in men who have sex with men, although there's pockets around the country where it's occurring more in men who have sex with women. Um, we don't really see an increase in ceftriaxone, although there's been treatment failures worldwide. So I put this slide up here to show you how different the treatment recommendations are. United States, United Kingdom, um, Europe and Japan. Japan has been using a gram for a long period of time. The UK just went to a gram. Um, Europe is using 500 plus two grams of azithro. Um, and so we discussed this um, at, uh, this was discussed at the CDC meeting about six months ago about what to do and reviewed all the data. Um, the issue is we need to think about the pharmacokinetics of the drugs at different sites, right? The pharynx is much different than thinking about the rectum, than thinking about the genitourinary system. Um, we're also trying to figure out how best to mitigate this, knowing what's going on around the world. Um, there are so two novel agents that are now in phase three trials. You see them listed there. Probably what's going to happen is we may get to combination therapy at some time in the future, but you need to know kind of where we're going now. So these are the draft recommendations, and these are drafts um, that, um, that CDC is considering. Um, that is to remove azithromycin because of the increase of resistance that's happening and to go up to 500 milligrams uh, once and then to give anti-chlamydial therapy when chlamydia has not been ruled out. Most of the time, the chlamydia and gonorrhea is getting bundled, and so you have both test results at the time. Um, so these are some draft recommendations. Um, they're still being considered um, with the anticipation of the, the guidance being um, published, like I said, in 2020. Also, the new thing that's being considered here is because where the breeding ground for antimicrobial resistance is, is in the throat. 
Um, if you detect pharyngeal gonorrhea, there's going to be a recommendation for a test of cure within seven to 10 days to make sure we've eradicated it from the pharynx because it's really hard to get rid of in the pharynx. So I'm actually almost on time. I can't believe it. Um, okay, STIs are on the rise. My last slide here. Um, we talked about the increases seen both in heterosexuals and MSM. Syphilis, remember, can prevent, present as painful ulcers. We talked about the um, unusual presentations, ocular, uh, cardiovascular, and screen frequently. Uh, for chlamydia, the extragenital infection, especially in MSM, LGV can present not only rectally but also orally. Doxycycline uh, for the draft recommendations. For gonorrhea, the resurgence of um, disseminated gonorrhea, the problems we're having with antimicrobial resistance, ceftriaxone dose will likely change, um, and the, the pharyngeal test of cure. The guidelines will probably be available in 2020. Um, and again, they'll be available for social on um, your app, um, both uh, Android and iPhone. Thank you very much for your attention. Right Great, so we've got lots of questions already, and I think uh, you sort of alluded to one on that very last slide. So talk about uh, treatment of gonorrhea in uh, failures of oral, uh, uh, of pharyngeal gonorrhea treatment. So we talked about before the most difficult place to eradicate gonorrhea is the pharynx, and the recommendation has been um, to use only uh, ceftriaxone because the other drugs that are available as alternatives don't work well in the pharynx. You saw the problems with azithromycin. Azithromycin works for um, gonorrhea at a two gram, at a, both a one and a two gram dose. It's approved by the FDA. Um, but you saw what the concern is with antimicrobial resistance. Um, that's the big concern. What about um, the other alternative regimen, which is an aminoglycoside? So gentamicin at 240 milligram dose is recommended um, for, at the pharyngeal site, but the problem is that um, the efficacy in the pharynx using aminoglycosides is only about 70%. Um, so the other thing I didn't talk about, there's also a genetic test that is not FDA cleared yet, but um, is looking to be probably FDA cleared in the next year and that's a um, genetic test to look for ciprofloxacin resistance. Um, so ciprofloxacin has not been recommended um, for the past number of years because the increase in resistance. If you remember the slide I showed you with all the antibiotics on it, um, there's an ongoing about a 30 to 40% prevalence of ciprofloxacin resistance, but there's a genetic test now that can pick that up. Um, and some, in some instances, it may be useful to be able to use that drug again once we have an FDA-cleared test that we can use to say that um, you can use a fluoroquinolone in that instance. So it's complicated. Hi, thank you. So I wanted to ask you, so if somebody comes in empirically with like anal and rectal symptoms, and as we said, the doxy is a better option, mm -hmm. um, but it also could be gonorrhea, 
what would would it be ceftriaxone and doxy? Would yep. you add azithro yep. or no? Yeah. So you would. So if somebody presents with proctitis, and so what you would do is, I mean, the things you need to think about with proctitis are chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, which can also cause proctitis and herpes. So in terms of examination, sometimes it's really hard, right, to examine somebody if they're just too painful. One of the things that I do is make sure they don't have any perianal ulcerations. That could be LGV or herpes. And so in that instance, you would treat them with, for gonorrhea, you'd give them empiric treatment for LGV, which is um, 100 milligrams of doxybid for 21 days. And then if there's peri perianal ulcers, I would also treat um, for um, herpes if I didn't know that that patient had herpes before. And the doxy, if you've got syphilis, the doxy will also help with syphilis while you're waiting for your RPR to come back. So no azithromycin in terms of the gun? No. Okay. No. Azithromycin will be an alternative for chlamydia. Yes, ma'am. So there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between our rising rates of STIs and then coverage for testing. So in patients living with HIV or patients on PrEP, for example, who have Medicare, I can't get an asymptomatic STI test covered by Medicare unless I get creative with diagnosis codes. Do you guys have any suggestions how we can go about getting Medicare to cover Z codes for asymptomatic STI for, testing? Um, the, this is on PrEP? It's, this could be one of my patients living with HIV. This could be a PrEP patient. This could be a primary care patient. Medicare doesn't cover Z codes. So, I have not had a problem with all the patients I have on Medicaid. I routinely Medicare. get back every oh, single Medicare test. Oh, Medicare or Medicaid? Medicare. Yeah, I have not. I have not had that issue with any of my Medi uh, Medicare patients. I, I don't know if anybody else is having that issue. Does everybody else have this problem? Okay. Yeah, so can we I have, have a solution, I have, please? I wonder if it's a. I wonder if it's a state issue. It's not. No, it's Medicare. Uh, it's Medicare. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, but that's great to know that there's a problem. Um, and I, the question is, is it just in the HIV population no, or no, the no, HIV no, uninfected no. population? It's, it's a Z code. A Z code is screening for STIs. Yes, screening. They don't, it's asymptomatic testing. Very much. Yep. Yeah, multiple yeah so in the multiple site issue, what's been happening is that some providers are being creative, and they're doing triple site screening but putting it in one tube. Or creating okay, fraud. in terms of pooling of specimens. Um, and yeah. Some people have talked to me about that. And when you are taking, trying to take care of a patient and give them the best care, you want to do the best you can um, in terms of that. I, I will I will, look into that in terms of I, I don't have a, a, an answer right now. I have not heard that question before, okay, that there's been a, a problem. One, so I appreciate your help. Yeah. But, but the, 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 the pooling is something that, um, we have done in some instances where we fight about the site-specific screening um, because you're trying to do the right thing. Before it was that we didn't have a validated test. Now that we've got a validated test, sometimes they don't want to pay for the, the test. So I'll, we'll, we'll get back to you on the Medicare. Yeah, we should, we'll, we'll take that back to um, Doug Brooks, I mean, John Brooks. We'll take that back to CDC as well. We've, <laughs> I've been working with them for years and years to try to get multi-site testing, just make it easier to do. Um, we've not made a ton of progress, but that should be something the CDC should be helping us on. Hi, Meredith Clement from LSU. Thank you. That was an excellent talk. Um, so I just have a quick comment and then a question. And my comment is just um, that there was a really interesting study, I think published in CID um, recently, that showed that MSM who have receptive anal sex or 
more likely to be diagnosed with secondary syphilis, meaning that we often miss the initial primary syphilis because we don't do rectal exams. So just a reminder to encourage our patients to maybe do self-exams or to just do those exams when we see them in clinic. Um, and then my question is that I had heard sort of murmurings of the CSF or the lumbar puncture recommendations um, disappearing in the setting of otic or uh, ophthalmologic syphilis. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Okay, so I didn't really, you were going in and out for the second part. For the first part, in terms of your exam, you are right on. And um, when the residents and medical students work with me, it's the first time that they examine, really look at somebody's skin and look at their butt and their throat. Okay, nobody does that. And so the issue is you have to ask where they've been exposed and they have to, because they have no symptoms. And so I think that's the point that um, patients with primary chancres, I showed you some of the painful presentations, but in a lot of instances, they don't even know it's there. They can't see it. And so you have to examine their mouth and their throat. I had a, I had a patient that complained that he had problems with, um, so, something didn't taste right, okay? And he was in a relationship with a partner for 15 years. It took me five minutes, but I finally found the ulcer on the side of his tongue. And because I knew what I, and I said, you're either gonna have cancer or syphilis. And they had brought somebody else into the relationship. And if you had assumed that this relationship had not changed, you would have missed it even, you would not have asked the question. So anytime when I, my patients come in, I say, has anything changed with your relationship of 15 years? Have you changed from a closed to an open relationship? Something like that to make you aware that the other people might have been brought into the relationship. So there was something, your second part, that had to do with CSF that I kind of missed. I, I was just curious if the guidelines would be changing for the LP recommendation. No. So they're not gonna be changing. So the LP, what you need to think about, where everybody got confused was this one to 32 titer and the greater than, so if, if a patient with HIV had a high titer and a CD4 count of less than 350, there was right. some observational data um, 10 years ago that showed there was an increase in some people, an increased risk of um, CSF abnormalities, but we know you can have CNS abnormalities independent um, that are associated with HIV, and we know that syphilis gets into the CSF. Right. So the I, people I, you should LP are only people that have signs or symptoms that you should go after, not on a titer and not on a CD4 count. Yeah, and I, sorry, I, I probably wasn't clear, but I was referring to ocular syphilis or otic syphilis um, when they have no other neurologic manifestations because of the I think you mentioned this, but low rates of actual CSF abnormalities when you do test, and then it wouldn't change management. Right. So you mean, do you have to tap them for yeah, oculus? Exactly. Oh, yeah. So the issue is it's optional. That's what, so the guidelines, so you would, the, the issue is that most people, who the heck wants an LP in the first place, right? You know, if you're going to ask your patient, they're going to say, no, I don't, do I really need it? Does it change management? No. So the issue is if you're concerned about the diagnosis of either um, otic or um, ophthalmologic syphilis, there's not a mandate to get an LP. So let's, if we can do quick questions, quick answers, we've got yeah. a whole bunch here that are great uh, that we're not getting. Yeah, I have a 60-year-old male positive um, anal swab for GC, was treated. A week later showed up in the office with a swollen testicle. Ultrasound showed he had a pretty significant hydrocele. 
um, with the radiologist said probable orchitis. And I'm just wondering, you know, did I miss something? You know, was it more severe proctitis, giving him doxy? You know, um, um, so I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> so the issue, well, no, the issue is that that's one of the complications, right, is that can cause epido, epido ep, I can't even say that, epididymoarchitis. Um, that's one of the complications. And it's not that you did anything wrong. The question is, did they have a sending infection at the time you saw them? And it wasn't quite evident on exam. So if somebody comes in with um, a, a discharge, um, I always try to make sure I examine the testicles and the epididymis to make sure that there was no tenderness um, that goes above the um, epididymis because the issue is um, then I would need to treat them longer. That's probably what happened is my guess. Um, just a quick response to the Medicare question. Um, the trick that we learned was not to use the Z code first as a primary diagnosis for the visit, and we use Z20.2, which is exposure to potentially sexually transmitted infection. So we don't have any issues with our Medicare patients because we don't use the Z code as a primary diagnosis, and then we use the Z20.2 to get the medications covered, to get the lab tests covered, too. Okay, that's that, great. Great, thank you. It's hard to hear. Uh, my question is about the patient that have treatment failure after being treated with penicillin. How you address this issue? I treatment failure after penicillin. This is for syphilis. For failed, they've been treated. For, they've yeah. been treated. So are you talking about serologic treatment failure? Yes. Okay. So that's complicated. As I said when I put up my monitoring, it, we could talk a whole um, hour about. Um, serologic treatment failure. So one of the things that's challenging, I told you the tests are really crappy, okay? It's really hard to determine um, serologic response, especially in individuals with HIV. What we know from a study that was done in 1997 um, was that after you treat somebody with primary, secondary, or early latent disease, that at the end of a year, 15 to 20% of people are serofast, which means their titer doesn't change, okay? So the issue that you have, that is so unnerving for providers is if their titer doesn't drop fourfold, right? And then they continue to be sexually active and you don't know if it was the, the, the titer that's just taken a long time to come down or whether they got reinfected. It's really hard is the answer. And so I can't give you a straight answer. People ask me this question all the time. Um, they have a great example. Last week, a provider had a patient that, whose titer was 1 to 256 for two years and said, what should I do? And the issue is, have they had intercurrent partners? Um, what we usually, is there an evidence that they've got something in their CSF? We don't know if tapping somebody in that instance is, is gonna make a difference. We just have no data, but it's recommended to consider that in the guidelines, right? To consider that, to see if they've got a cult infection. But in this instance, in this person that had a titer of one to 256, I said, calm down. You don't need to treat the lab test. You need to treat the patient and put it in context. As providers, we want that RPR to go to non-reactive and then we can sleep at night. This provider couldn't sleep because they, they were nervous that they were doing something wrong. There are some people that don't come down. And you just have to 
accept it. And sometimes talk to somebody, run it by, run it by an STD person, and get another opinion on what to do. Sometimes it's their normal. Okay, uh, just one last quick question before we, uh, w one question here and then one question there, but the question here is, should you do extra genital testing in women? It's a great question, and what I put on my screening slide was there are, there, um, are no national recommendations. There is emerging data in women, um, and this has come up a lot, um, came up in discussion um, about adolescents before they actually become sexually active. A lot of them are doing um, extra genital activity, and the question is, is that the place that we should be looking? So um, the, the bottom line answer is what's um, going to be what was talked about and what's in draft recommendations now um, is that you can consider it in certain instances. One is adolescence, um, because the frequency of extra genital, um, and the other is in women with um, chlamydia infection that you are treating with azithromycin. And the reason for that is because azithromycin isn't as, as effective as the rectal site, and the thought is, is if they've got infection, um, it can, some of the chlamydia can actually get into the rectal site through secretions and then auto-infect back to the vagina. It's kind of complicated if you think about it, but it's going to be a consider and it's going to be probably buried in the text. So it's not going to be in bold anywhere, you're just going to have to read the language. But that's kind of where it is right now. Quick question and quick answer because then we're sure. going to take a break. Carlos Chosin, your Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, we all have patients like uh, the following. Uh, HIV patient that has been treated, diagnosed with syphilis, unsuccessfully treated. You could see a decline in the RPR, the whole shalom. No more sex, none whatsoever. Months, years down the road, they come back, and you do see an elevation of the RPR on a persistent basis. So we call this a relapse. Question is, where does the syphilis spirochete hide? Do we know where is the reservoir? So I, I missed the last so part. So the question is, where is the reservoir? That they, they, they go down to, you know, they're 1 to 256, and they go down to 1 to 1, and, or, or they don't have any tighter, and then they come back at 1 to 4. So the issue, the issue with that is very difficult because, as I mentioned before, the test is not good. And I wish, I, we, I wish we had a better test. Um, what, where that's come up before, is if somebody's been, and I've seen this numerous times, when people are hanging out one-to-one, one-to-two, one-to-four, they go non-reactive, and the next couple of tests, they blip up again. I think that it may have been a problem with the test that was non-reactive, number one. Number two, um, do people think that oral sex is sex? When you ask them if they've been sexually active, Maybe they didn't, did you ask them whether they had oral sex? He said, yeah. So. Um, so again, sometimes people miss that and they don't think oral sex is having sex. So the tests are imperfect. Um, they're very difficult in terms of the RPR. If you, the inter-person variability with somebody interpreting RPR is actually very high. So I'm going to have so to cut the, off. It's the test problem. Yeah, I'm going to have to cut off questions now, just because people are going into break. But you're welcome to come up. It's um, about pregnancy and uh, chlamydia and doxycycline. Yeah, okay. come on. Yeah, I'll come be on, happy to come talk on up, about and it. we'll get that answered. Um, thank you, everyone. We